0: Thanks, Wooj. Good morning, everyone. Uh, Lovely to see you here this morning and a Happy New Year. Well, not quite New Year, but almost. Uh, My name's Marshall. Uh, I'm one of the pastors here at SWEC and it's my privilege to be able to bring God's Word uh, to you this morning. Today we are starting a new series, a three-part series on the Psalms. And there are three particular Psalms, Psalm 2, Psalm 22 and Psalm 110 and they are what are known as messianic psalms, Uh, psalms that speak of God's anointed king, a messiah who will come and today is the first of those psalms. I resisted the urge to preach a New Year's sermon, actually not much of an urge, I hate the idea of preaching a New Year's sermon so I didn't. Uh, but let's um, let's pray as we come to God's word. Father God, thank you for this psalm that speaks of your anointed Son coming to the world. Thank you that we just celebrated that at Christmas time. Thank you that He comes as King of Kings, King over all the nations. He is King over us. He is our Judge. And he is our saviour. And we pray that you would help us today to respond to him in a way that is right. In Jesus' name. Amen. In 1963, a psychologist from Yale University called Stanley Milgram conducted a famous experiment designed to see how far people would go in obeying someone who was a figure of authority. What happened was that Milgram uh, installed a group of volunteers and asked them to give an electric shock to someone who they couldn't see if they gave the wrong answer to a question. Now, the electric shocks weren't real and the people on the other end were actually actors pretending to be shocked. But the volunteers didn't know that. What the experiment showed is that a majority of people were willing to keep increasing the voltage because someone in authority, someone wearing a lab coat, told them to do it, that it was important for them to do it. Two-thirds of the volunteers continued to increase the voltage of the shocks even after the one who was being shocked was apparently Unconscious. Milgram's experiment, as you can imagine, was pretty controversial, but it was also pretty influential because it highlighted the power that an authority figure has. It also highlighted the dangers of blindly following anyone who tells us what to do. And it tapped into a growing um, desire in, in our culture to question authority. And to go to the next step and, and even cast off traditional voices of authority. To find freedom to go your own way and pursue it autonomy. And of course that's what we know is exactly what happened in the 60s and 70s in Western culture. And it's continued to be part of the air that we breathe today. Today our default position is to still question authority. Governments, the police, even the church. doesn't mean that we all take to the streets and start uh, protesting, but by and large, we no longer just accept the voice's authority telling us to do what we're told without question. Our starting point isn't obedience, but autonomy. Our rights as individuals to make our own way in life. Now we might think that that spirit of autonomy being suspicious of authority is a modern thing that it arose in the 60s. No, it didn't. because It's something that's as old as the hills. It's something that we find here reflected in Psalm 2 where the kings of the nations stand and fight against God's authority, against God's rule. But God we see in the psalm, isn't threatened by their rebellion. Instead, he sits back and laughs because he has installed his son as the true king and he will break the rebellion of the nations. But then we find a surprising outcome to submitting to the true king. Instead of his rule being oppressive, instead of him uh, keeping people bound down with chains, Joy is found in serving and refuge is found in God's King. So that's where we're going this morning, got three points. The first one, verses 1 to 3, we hear the kings of the nation standing against the true King. 4 to 9, the second point, the response of the King is to just sit and laugh. And then 10 to 12, our third point, joy is to be found in submitting the king so our first point the kings stand against the king verses one to three the psalmist starts off with a rhetorical question i'll have the verses up uh, on the screen so you can follow there or in your bibles verse one asks why do the nations conspire and the people's plot in vain it's a rhetorical question a rhetorical question is one where Whoever asks the question doesn't really expect an answer or the answer is very obvious. And here the answer is is obvious because it's useless to conspire against God because they're not going to win. In the original Hebrew, the word for conspire means to be in tumult, the idea of getting all worked up about something all stirred up. Picture a violent protest where you get these crowds of people shaking their fists and shouting and throwing stones. And specifically, it's the kings of the nations who are doing the fist shaking. Verse 2, the kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together. Literally it says they stand, they're on their feet looking for action and that action is against God. Again verse 2, against the Lord and against his anointed saying let us break their chains and throw off their shackles. This phrase the anointed one means God's chosen king. These kings don't like the idea of God ruling over them and God installing a king to have authority over them. A king is someone who is used to uh, being a head honcho, so you might imagine that the kings don't take very kindly to someone being over them. They're used to having freedom to do exactly what they like. They don't very much like the idea of submitting to a higher king over them. These kings rather resent the idea of God claiming to be the one in authority. Now in the ancient world each nation had their own gods. Babylon had its gods, Egypt had their gods, uh, etc. But the thing about these gods is that they were pretty handy gods to have around. They were kind of like a national mascot. They would, be the, they would wave the flag for their country. They would fight their battles. They would be the protector for the people. As long as the people did the right thing by their gods, they made the right sacrifices, visited them in their temples, prayed to them, these gods would protect them and look after them. In effect, the gods would serve the people. But Yahweh, the Lord, that we hear about in Psalm 2, was different. He wasn't just Israel's God. He claimed to be God over all the nations. And he wasn't there to fight the battles for anyone, not even for Israel. No, instead, Yahweh demanded to be served. And these kings didn't like that idea. And so they all stand up, they shake their fists and they try to break out of what they see as the chains that he puts on them. But it's not just the kings standing up against God because in verse 1 it says the nations, together the whole nations conspire. The people of the nations are standing up and shaking their fists as well. And in the West today, the idea of submitting and obedience is pretty unpopular to most people. Especially the idea of submitting to God. We are much more attracted to the idea of having autonomy and control over our lives, aren't we? Even when it comes to our spiritual lives. A couple of years ago, uh, the ABC ran a story about a study in the UK by a sociologist named Linda Woodhead on changing religious beliefs. Woodhead concluded from the study that even though a lot of people are leaving the church, they're not giving up on spirituality. Instead, they're kind of seeking an alternative form of spirituality. This is what she says. She says, young people are very concerned about their identities. They want to find a spiritual, moral and communal life that is personally meaningful for them. And they want to have much more authority in their quest and in their spiritual development. Part of being sinful human beings, whether we're pagan or Christian or any other religion, means that we grasp onto what she's describing here. And that is our own authority. We want to have our own authority, to have autonomy in our spiritual lives. We want to break free of anything or anyone who might want to restrict our freedom, even God. Healthy exercise for us here uh, to do occasionally is to ask, is there an area of my life that I want to keep control of? Maybe every other area you're willing to hand over to God, but this area, no, no, this is my area, I'm not willing to hand this over to God. I want to suggest that there are three areas where we commonly struggle not to hand it over to God. Money, relationships and work. Money because we are all affected by the rampant materialism and consumerism of our money centred culture. It feels innocuous, it seems wise, it seems safe, even it feels sensible to make decisions about money where I'm doing just what the world does, accumulating, saving. And I think often we push God out of that picture. Relationships are another area that we can push God out because it can be desperately difficult to trust God in this area, especially if you're single I was single once and 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 back in those days, I know for, I remember from experience how hard it was to believe that God knows best when it comes to the needs of my heart. And then the third area is work. How hard it can be to go against the corporate tide that says, that the wise and smart thing to do is always to be looking to climb that ladder, to get that promotion, to be always looking towards that pay increase. Like the kings of the nations, we crave autonomy and fight against God having authority over our lives. Well, then we have a scene change in our psalm. Uh, The focus moves from the kings and the nations and centres on the throne room of God in the heavens. And that's our second point, the kings sit. The king sits and laughs. Have a look at verse 4. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. In the Hebrew, the, the word for enthroned is literally sits. God sits in the heavens and it's meant to be a contrast towards what we just heard about the kings. The kings are standing, remember? They're standing in tumult, they're shaking their fists. God, in contrast, is sitting there laughing. He doesn't even stand up. He sits and scoffs at them. Laughter is an expression of confidence, isn't it? It's the language of victors. Last night I had a board game uh, with my son and his girlfriend and and their family and as always I lost and the winners were laughing at me because that's what victors do, they laugh. God feels no threat from his enemies. He treats them as a joke. But then the jokes end. And God's anger rises against those who would reject his authority. Look at verse five. He terrifies up, oh, didn't have verse five. Oh, sorry, verse five. He terrifies them in his wrath and says, verse six, which I do have up. I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. So remember, God in verse 2 had talked about his anointed one. This is the same one. God's king is his anointed chosen king who ruled in Zion, in Jerusalem. Now, that, that figure was a familiar term to, um, to the ancient Israelites. Every good Jew believed that God himself chose a human king right from the time of Saul and then David and then all the other kings. They were God's chosen king, shepherding God's people, God's representative. And the king was also God's instrument for protecting his people. They would go into battle for them. Even Saul, who was such a bad king, uh, beat up on the Philistines, God's enemies, uh, protecting the people. And so the warning for the nations is that you'd better watch out because God's chosen king will bring the sword against them. But then the description of the king takes a surprising turn. Have a look at verse 7. This is the king speaking now. He said to me, you are my son. Today I've become your father. Ask me and I will make the nations your inheritance. Sorry, this is God speaking, not the son. I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. The idea of the king being a son of God wasn't new to Israel, but what is new is what's in this, is this phrase, I have become your father. In the Hebrew, it's, uh, the word is begotten. Literally, it means given, I have given birth to you. That's so not trying to convey the idea of uh, of this king being God's baby but what it's trying to convey is that this king comes from God that he's actually divine he's not just a normal regular human king this is a divine king different from all the other kings this anointed king is the messianic figure that uh, the other prophets in the New Old Testament talk about Isaiah in particular. A king in the line of David who would save his people. And as we saw in verse 8, this rule would be more than even the greatest of, of the earthly kings would do. It says every nation... Will be under his rule. Every nation will be his inheritance to the ends of the earth. The whole world will be his possession. And that's felt bad news for those kings standing up and shaking their fists against the king. Verse 9 You will break them with an iron rod, you will dash them to pieces like, like pottery. God's king would bring judgment on the nations because of their rebellion. Now the idea of judgment gets a lot of bad press these days, doesn't it? We don't like to speak very much about judgment, about God's anger. It's not the most popular idea going around. And we don't like the idea of our lives being scrutinised, do we, of being put under the microscope by God. We much prefer the idea these days of being free to be our authentic self, uh, to live however we want, to have freedom. But friends, the reality of a king who is judge is exactly what we need And it might sound paradoxical, but it's exactly what gives us hope. Because it means that the bad guys don't win in the end. It means that the bullies, the dictators, the terrorists of the world that we hear about every day in the news, it means that they don't get away with murder and rape and oppression. It means for those who perpetrate the violence against innocent victims in in Gaza and Ukraine and East Africa and other places. And for those who persecute the church in many places in the world. It means that for those people, there will be a day of reckoning. There will come a day when things are put right and the innocent victims... brought justice but it also means that our lives will be judged as well how we respond to god's king and to his rule matters our lives aren't our own we aren't autonomous beings we are not masters of our own destiny well after this warning that the kings of the nations will be judged by God's chosen king, comes a word of hope in verses 10 to 12. And that's our third point. If these kings respond to God's king the right way, there is joy to be found in submitting to the king. Have a look at verse 11. "Serve Serve the Lord with fear and celebrate his rule with trembling. Verse 12, kiss his son or he will be angry and your way will lead to destruction for his wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. The word translated celebrate in verse 11 actually means rejoice, be filled with joy. These last couple of verses in Psalm 2 you may have noticed are kind of a mirror image. They're meant to sit in contrast with verses 1 to 3. So remember in verse 1, the nations are all stirred up, shaking their fists in tumult. Here in verse 11, if they fear God's king, they will rejoice with trembling. In verse 3, they are determined to throw off the shackles of God's rule. In verse 11, they are called to serve the Lord with fear and the result will be instead of having the wrath, the anger of God bearing down upon them. Verse 12, it's replaced by blessing and the peace and safety of taking refuge in the king. It all comes down to how they respond to the Son, to God's chosen King. Well, we've just celebrated Christmas and Christmas is all about this same Son of God, celebrate, celebrating Him coming to live with us, coming to be on the earth. As Jesus grew up, and began to preach the news of the gospel, the good news, that he came into the world to save humanity and to deal with our sin. We can read read all that in the pages of the four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. As we do that, we see the story, the predictions, uh, the description of what's happening in Psalm 2 unfolding in the pages Of history. We see the kings of the nations, King Herod, Pontius Pilate, the representative of uh, the Roman king, along with the Jewish leaders, we see them all opposing and shaking their fists at God's anointed one, and eventually putting him to death. And then after Jesus rises from the dead, the book of Acts records the spread of the good news that the Son of God had conquered death and that he had come to deal with our sins and he did that in his death on the cross. He is the Messiah, the anointed king of Psalm 2. In Acts 4, the disciples quote verses 1 to 2 Of Psalm 2 when they gather to pray and they say why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain because those words of Psalm 2 were unfolding before their eyes the disciples had just been arrested and warned by the the Sanhedrin the Jewish leaders and then thrown out of the temple and warned not to speak of Jesus again. Just like the kings of the nations, the Jewish leaders couldn't live with a king who threatened their power. And today, 2,000 years ago, the words of Psalm 2 continue to work themselves out in our world. Human beings continue to hate the idea of a higher authority. The idea of a king over us who threatens our autonomy, who tells us that we are not masters of our own destiny, who tells us that a final judgment is coming. Jesus did come as judge, but he also came as saviour. And which one of those he is to us depends on how we respond to him. You see, Psalm 2 isn't just a word for the kings of the world, it's also a word for us. And I want to finish off by leaving you with a contrast towards two ways that we can live. Sounds like a good name for a gospel tract, doesn't it? Two ways of responding to Jesus the King and they are reflected by two contrasting words In Psalm 2, the first word is in verse 1. I mentioned before that the word conspire is perhaps better translated as tumult. Being in a state of agitation or tumult. Verse 1, why are the nations in tumult? Remember they're standing there in tumult, shaking their fists at God because he threatens their autonomy he threatens their authority if we reject jesus our king we're living in a state of tumult whether we're aware of it or not we're constantly striving against god trying to assert our autonomy against god and against other people restless and not at peace because that's not the way we were created to be no peace with God, no peace with ourselves. The world may tell us that's freedom, but friends, really, that's bondage bondage to sin. And we only have to look around us to see the fallout from that the reality of a world where there's the explosion of mental health problems, loneliness, isolation. And more as evidence that all is not well with the world. But then there's a second word, and that's refuge. We saw it in verse 12, remember? Blessed are all who take refuge in him. This is what's in store for those who lay down their arms, stop shaking their fists against God's Son. Instead of the prospect of God's anger, we find our protection and safety in the King. Instead of alienation and isolation from God, we find forgiveness, accepting his death on the cross as payment for our sin, in payment for our fist-shaking and rebellion against the King. Refuge is a state that doesn't promise an easy life. It doesn't promise protection from pain or danger or suffering. But what it does promise is a certain hope that God will be with us as our friend, that he will lead us safely into his kingdom and into the new creation after we die. Refuge in the sun enables us to live with hope and joy regardless of what life throws at us. Knowledge of that refuge enabled Horatio Spafford many years ago to pen the wonderful words of the hymn It is well with my soul. Now I'm not usually one to quote the lines of a hymn but This one is special. You may know the story, uh, the story Spafford wrote this letter after receiving news that his wife and daughters had died at sea. Despite the unimaginable devastation of that loss, this is what Spafford wrote. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, Whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. Though Satan should buffet, though trials should come, let this blessed assurance control that Christ hath regarded my helpless estate and hath shed his own blood for my soul. Let's pray. Thank you so much, Lord, that As uh, Horatio Spathop understood, your refuge enables us in the midst of the most desperate turmoil to say that all is well with our soul. Father, help us to know that. Help us to know the refuge that Jesus offers. The refuge of submitting to the King of laying down our arms and submitting, knowing that he is in control and that he is the one who brings us safely through to the destiny that he has created us to come to in the new creation, knowing that there will be no more tears, no more suffering, no more wars. Amen.